A warning. This episode contains discussions of violence and road fatalities. If this material raises issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shan. This week, we explore the human stories behind our New South Wales police officers and the resilience they need to carry on in the job after experiencing trauma, like the death of a colleague on the job. You do get worried. Uh, am I going to overreact the next time I'm dealing with somebody? Uh, there, there are knives in the community. How am I going to go when that happens? And we take a look at country policing and making the move from the big smoke. When I was in the city, I did 20 years in Sydney. I never once hung my uniform outside. I didn't want anyone to know what I did for work. Uh, Here, when I first moved here, we lived in the police house. Every single person knew our home, um, our movements, uh, our shopping. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Since 1964, Police Bank has stood for the financial well-being of police their families, friends, and communities. As it's member-owned, Police Bank is able to offer more competitive rates for banking with them. Whatever's next on your horizon, Police Bank can help you get there sooner. Resilience comes in different forms in policing. Many officers will be involved in dangerous, life-threatening situations over their careers. Some bring trauma from life events before they join New South Wales Police. Here are two such stories where officers have had fulfilling and meaningful careers despite suffering trauma. Later, Detective Sergeant Kylie Whiting will talk about the tragic event that led her to join the force. Look, I was 17 at the time and I was involved in a fatal car accident where a young person that was a passenger in our car died. First, Senior Constable Brian Neville's story. Brian was with Constable Peter Forsyth when the young father was killed in the line of duty in 1998. They'd been having a drink after work with another colleague, Constable Jason Semple. The trio tried to arrest a man who offered them drugs. A struggle ensued and Constable Forsyth was stabbed to death and Jason Semple was wounded. The killer, Murray Walter Hearn, spent 16 years in jail for the murder of Peter Forsyth and the stabbing of Jason Semple. Brian Neville lives with the memory of that night every day in the job. Yeah, my name's Brian Neville. I'm a senior constable of police at uh, currently working at Cessnock in the Hunter Valley Police District, working in the proactive crime team. I joined 34 years ago. I had three years off at the beginning of my career when I was sort of undecided, uh, but then came back to the police in 1996. And then, February 28, 1998, it's a very challenging day. Yeah, yes. Uh, it's certainly something you can never erase from your memory. Um, what started out as a normal day working, Jason Semple, who was only two weeks in at that point in time, working with me and showing him the ropes. And, um, yeah, that night that night will never leave me. Well, we've finished work and I'd arranged with... Peter Forsyth, uh, one of my really, really good mates. We would go out after for just a couple of beers. Yeah, we went out to Lord Wellesley Hotel near Peter's place. We'd only had a 
couple of beers or a few beers and played a bit of pool, had a few laughs and uh, we're heading back to Peter's uh, when we were called out by a young fellow wanting to sell drugs and we turned our attention, we would recall ourselves, arrest these young people and... That person was Murray Hearn. What did you learn of him later on? Learned that he was 18, that uh, he had a history of having knives, a little bit wayward and he was from out in the western suburbs of Sydney. So this is what police do regularly. You're off duty, but you see something and you just don't walk past it. What were you taught about those sorts of things? Back then, you know, it's uh, you're on duty 24-7. There was an expectation that you would intervene under certain circumstances. It's what I would have called a garden variety lockup or arrest. So Hearn is arrested. What happens next? His younger brother who approached us and then he called Hearn over. We sort of had them in an alcove at Ultimo there. We started asking them questions about identity and so forth. Uh, The young fellow said to me, are you cops? I said yes. By this time the struggle had started to my left with um, Jason and Peter. So I went to intervene. Uh, I remember Jason screaming out something like he's got a knife. Uh, I've grabbed Murray by the shoulders and I've uh, sort of thrown him towards a footpath. I haven't directly seen the knife in his hand. I was concentrating on him, but I've seen a flash of something in his hand and then he's turned tail and run and so has the young fella. Um, I've gone and chased them for a short time. Meanwhile, I could hear Jason say that he was leaking and by that uh, he meant that he'd been stabbed. I was running down the hill, sort of losing ground in the back of my mind. I'm thinking of Jason and getting back to help him. Uh, So I decided to turn around myself and go and help Peter with Jason. Alerted residents there that uh, to call triple zero. By the time I got back, there were some, a couple of security guards from the police boys club saw Peter sort of uh, hunched over on top of Jason. I remember the security guard saying he's just upset and I thought to myself there's just there is something not quite right about this. I've lifted Peter up back onto me and lifted his shirt up. I could see that he had a wound and uh, yeah there was no blood to speak of really flowing out of that wound and yeah obviously Jason was still there in need of first aid and it was fairly quick that um, we had emergency services, more police and ambulance on the scene. And you're probably thinking Jason is more seriously hurt than Peter at this stage. I saw that Peter wasn't bleeding. He wasn't, he was barely, I would say, hardly responding. I could see some movement in his eyes. Yeah, Jason was still able to talk. And now the awful truth's unfolding and, and I just can't imagine what that's like. You've gone from a quiet evening, having a couple of beers, suddenly confronted with this yeah it's um surreal to say the least it's um something i don't like replaying in my mind a whole lot um the memories that will never leave mm. how have you how have you dealt with those memories brian at the start um, my focus was to to honor pete and to get back on the rails at the time i had three weeks off work 
those three weeks, that felt like five minutes because my mind was just continually racing. I saw a psychiatrist in relation to everything that had happened. He was fantastic in sort of making my mind sort of calm down. Uh, I went back to work after three weeks. I did, I think I assisted in licensing for about a week before I said, no, I've, I've got to get back on the horse. I've got to get back out on the street and, you know, honour my mate by carrying on what we were doing. I was worried for the first long time how I'd react at my next arrest and particularly dealing with younger people. And it was one of those things where I thought, I've got to push through it. It is a, a calling and a duty that you, yeah, that you, you put on yourself. Had all of those, uh, you know, daunting thoughts running through my head at the time, but thought I'll just push through it and be the best that I can be on the other side of it. You do get worried. Uh, is am I going to overreact the next time I'm dealing with somebody? Uh, there, there are knives in the community. How am I going to go when that happens? But um, like I said, it just when you get back on the horse, it sort of erodes that uncertainty. The more you do it, obviously it doesn't happen every day. So for the first little while, there were less exciting arrests that didn't have too much conflict. There are a couple of triggers and there are even people that we arrested that would try and bring up the whole Peter Forsyth thing and try and make you react negatively about that. I didn't, fortunately. I just, you know, I took it on the chin and, and seen these people for what they are and they'll say what they can. Well, that's right because it's hard because it so easily could have been Brian Neville they were talking about getting stabbed and dying. Yeah, that's right. I think when you're a young person, I mean, you don't worry too much about if you get stabbed because you do think you're bulletproof. But um, when they talk about your mate who was stabbed and murdered, it obviously hits nerves. I had people around me. I don't get that um, red mist in, in reacting to things. I sort of take a more calm approach, fortunately, for myself anyway. You really do sound calm. I guess when you've been through something like this, it's like soldiers have been to war and things and they, they come back and they are different to everybody else. How much do you think that night changed you? Uh, a hell of a lot. I think you suddenly alert yourself to, not that you weren't looking for signs of danger prior to that, but I think it really puts foremost in your mind, I've got to look out for my mates. I have a duty to you know, not only do my job, to, but to look out for my mates so that they're not injured or hurt. And they call it survivor's guilt. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair thing? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, I, I didn't have children at the time. Peter had two young kids, Brody and Mitchell. You know, they missed out on their father and they, they got to live, unfortunately, without him anymore. And you've since had children? Yeah, I've got my two children. I've got two um, stepsons as well and a really good woman. So, Do you think in some ways that you're living the life that Peter sacrificed to the job? Look, I hope I'm, I hope I'm doing my best to honour him and the sacrifice that he made. Yeah, I certainly uh, remember the stories that he used to tell about his kids and, and that sort of thing and was their mentor, their, their parent, uh, him and Jackie. 
yeah, he used to talk about his kids all the time. So, yeah, I hope I could come some way in doing that justice as well. Yeah, because I think a lot of people would say, I oh, don't blame you, Brian, if you quit and get away from the job, but you needed to, to get back to it. What did continuing in the job mean to you? Like I said, at the start, it was... I had all of those thoughts, you know, and it was more about the stress and the pressure and uh, everything else around what had happened. You do think of, do I forge through? And like I said at the beginning, uh, my focus was I just want to honour Pete, you know, the sacrifice that he made to what we do and what we did and loved. And um, the the more you go on, it's like, you know, New South Wales Police Force is a brand that I'm proud to serve under. Now retired Chief Inspector who spoke to me at times about brand and New South Wales Police Force is a brand that I'm very proud to serve under. And I know Pete was proud to serve under it. He was very passionate, not only about police work, Pete and I got to work together quite a bit, but he was a very passionate, community-minded person as well. Yeah, I think the more you go on, it's like my brand is New South Wales Police Force. I strive to do the best I can under that brand and represent that brand the best that I can. Yes. And so what jobs have you done since that that time? What's been the trajectory of your career? For most of it, uh, I remain in general duties. Um, I always enjoy or enjoyed working with the younger, more junior staff and training them up and giving them the insights that I have and and just teaching them to be safe and how to confront certain situations and made a transition over to plain clothes in the proactive crime team. Now I'm really enjoying that role as well. What do you think that your experience demonstrates to younger people and older people, I guess, who go through a traumatic experience in the job and how they can pick up the pieces and continue on? What do you think your story shows other people? One thing that I always tell the police that I work with is like we might go to a traumatic event and we're having a bad day with it but what I always tell myself is well my day might be quite bad or quite terrible the families of the victims that we go to in our jobs their days just must be beyond terrible you know much more devastating so I think that way of thinking sort of keeps me I'm here to do my job to help the community representing the New South Wales Police Force. And I hope the young people that uh, join the police never lose that passion for doing good for their communities. Can you also take some pride from the fact that you've carried on, that you that you he can't continue, but you have? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, he sacrificed everything. He He paid the ultimate price and I hope that he's up there proud of me. I do have a sense of pride in the fact that I have been resilient enough to carry on. I understand that um, not everybody has that resilience, but I'm glad that resilience picked me to carry on and do my duties. Well, thank you for sharing Peter's memory and also thank you for your service, Brian Neville. Thank you, Adam. That was Senior Constable Brian Neville and his memories of his mate, the late Peter Forsyth. The 29th of September each year marks National Police Remembrance Day, when police and their families acknowledge those that have died in the line of duty serving their community. A memorial wall is located in Sydney's Royal Botanic Gardens, 
dedicated to the fallen, where Constable Peter Forsythe's name appears alongside his fellow officers. Detective Sergeant Kylie Whiting wanted to be an Egyptologist before a tragedy led her to consider a career of public service. My name is Detective Sergeant Kylie Whiting. I'm the Investigations Manager at Eastern Suburbs. I've been in the job 27 years. That must be a busy kind of role. I think anywhere in the city is a busy role. Um, Sydney City, Eastern Suburbs, you know, we're on the world news. Anything happens in these commands, the world knows about it. Kylie has seen a lot in her 27 years in the police. Even before she joined, she'd been exposed to trauma. Look, I was 17 at the time and I was involved in a fatal car accident um, where a young person that was a passenger in our car died. Um, We'd been out one night at a club in Liverpool and we were going to go to another club in Cabramatta. We met these guys outside one of the clubs and they agreed to come to one of the clubs with us. And so we all drove to Cabramatta via Adenza Park. So when we arrived at Adenza Park, one of the the guys, Andre, hopped out of the car that they were travelling in and hopped into the car that I was in with Teresa. And as we were driving towards Cabramatta, we lost control of our vehicle. We'd mounted a kerb on Edenza Road. And as Teresa tried to correct the vehicle, we collided with a telegraph pole on the other side of the road. The pole snapped in half and the whole suburb was blacked out. Then I hopped out of the motor vehicle and I could see that Andre was on the back of the had been ejected from the car and was on the boot and I started to walk towards a phone box to call police. I was then stopped by some people, some neighbours who said they already had. They brought me back to the car and at that point Teresa had come too and she got out of the car as well. I mean I suffered a traumatic hallucination they call it because that phone box didn't exist. I've carried the trauma of the accident and the death of Andre with me for over 30 years. I became a police officer because of it. After Kylie started in her first police station, she still had reminders of the trauma of the past. My first police station was Wetherill Park Police Station, so I drove down that road a number of times and I did suffer from some reactions driving down that road. I've been to a number of major fatal collisions throughout my career, so definitely it comes back to you. Every anniversary, I often think... You know, there's a lot of things that Andre's missed out on as a result of that collision and passing away. Yeah, so it never really leaves you. I guess a trajectory in your life at that stage where you were kind of in harm's way, is that fair to say? Look, I come from a pretty challenging childhood. You know, single mother, alcoholic father who left the family when I was very young. You know, I went to numerous different schools around New South Wales, Queensland, had the the normal challenges that teenagers face with growing up. But, you know, I carried sort of silently some childhood trauma, a reality that life was either going to make or break me, and I had to make a decision as to what I was going to do. So how did the police force jump into your mind? Um, When I was sitting on the side of the road after that collision, it was very dark, we'd broke a telegraph pole, power was out. I recall the the headlights of the cars and the red and blue flashing lights of police, ambulance, everyone that turned up to attend the scene. And I just sat there and went, oh, that's something I could do. And it was really quite unrealistic at the time. Like I'd just been 
in this serious collision. Someone had died. I didn't finish school, but that was a defining moment. And you went from that moment, I can change my life forever? Is that, was, it, was it like a door opening for you? It was kind of a reality check. So I then made some choices where I had to decide whether I was going to go back to school or do further study. I wasn't going back to school. I pretty much failed school. Um, I went to so many and never really settled into education. So I studied at TAFE and did community welfare for the next sort of couple of years. And then I sort of built some courage up to get my driver's licence after that collision. And then I applied to join the police. Did your friends, I guess, from the earlier period say, Kylie, you're joining the cops, really? I didn't really tell anyone. Whilst I've got friends that are in my life now that have been around for 20, 30 years, I didn't really have a lot of the school friends or that I hung out with because I went to so many different schools. I was 21, I was young. Whilst I'd had some exposure to life, I mean, this fatal collision that I had at 17 was not my first, it was my second. I was also in another fatal collision when I was 10. So, you know, I'd had a little bit of exposure to life and how traumatic some things can be. So, yeah, I went in pretty open-minded and prepared to see where it took me. Now, I don't want to give away your age here, but how many years ago was that? I joined the police in 1996. When you look back at it now, it must feel like that was a natural choice because you've had a terrific career. Does it feel like a natural choice? This was waiting for you in a sense? Oh, look, I'm definitely where I belong. You know, when I was a younger, a younger kid, I grew up wanting to be an Egyptologist. So this is a very, a very different field to end up in, um, but it, it's definitely where I belong. It's had its challenges. It's certainly not all been rosy. There's been times where I've really questioned whether I still belong in the police, but you ride those waves and I still belong in the police and I'm probably going to be here until I retire. Because you'd already had a history of trauma before the job and now you've probably seen all kinds of things that normal people don't see. How do you address that, that debrief? Policing's like no other career. We're always dealing with people that are in crisis, people that require our help, people that require assistance. And with that comes pressures, with that comes more trauma, with that comes responsibility. And so I think it can, it can play on our minds, but we need to make sure we've got the right support in place, coping mechanisms to deal with them. And you've made your way to sergeant in the police force. And it's also a role where they mentor people coming in. And I'm sure you had sergeants who did the same for you. What do you see your role as a leader in your station with these people coming in? I have worked with some very good bosses and leaders in this organisation. And I think that at this point in time, it's up to me to impart some of that knowledge and wisdom on our younger police. If we can set them up with good practices and good procedures early in their career, it will serve them well throughout their career. Like Brian Neville, Kylie Whiting has dedicated herself to making a difference in life. We can't change the past, but we can live in a manner that honours the sacrifices of others. Um, I would like to think that out of that bad choice that I made, that I have done some good. I've given back. Thanks to Detective Sergeant Kylie Whiting and Senior Constable Brian Neville for sharing their stories. This segment was dedicated to the memory of Peter Forsyth and recognises the sacrifices of all those who put themselves in harm's way.
In a moment, we go back inside the New South Wales Police Force. But now, a message from our sponsor. There are many reasons to choose a term deposit with Police Bank. Whether you're planning a holiday, saving for your first or second property, buying a car, school expenses, or simply just saving for a rainy day. Police Bank has a range of term deposits, starting from periods of six months, so you can choose a term deposit that suits you. This segment is sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. This week, a different kind of academy story, focusing on the path that a New South Wales policing career can take. And part of the brief of this podcast is to tell the stories of the police officers you rarely hear from, the cops in the rural and remote areas of the state. Today, we go to Dareton in the remote southwest of New South Wales, in the massive barrier police district that's much busier than you might imagine. Inspector Prue Bergen is the officer in charge of the southern sector of this frontier. I've been in the New South Wales Police Force for 25 years next month, it's hard to believe. But uh, yeah, Inspector Prue Bergen, currently based at Dayton Police Station, part of Barrier Police District. Tell us about Barrier Police District. It's big, isn't it? Oh, it's huge. It's uh, about 23% of New South Wales we cover across 10 police stations and some of the most remote areas of New South Wales as well. My sector is the southern part of that. And you're in New South Wales, but you've got exposure into South Australia and Victoria. You're really at the centre of, of everything there. Yeah, true. And Barrier Police District also covers Queensland border as well. So when you're on call, you're covering three different bordering jurisdictions. So yeah, look, it's one of the complexities of cross-border policing, but it's also something that you just don't experience unless you're you know, a state crime detective dealing with extraditions. It's something that uh, the general duties deal with here every day and is something you've really got to get your head around when you first start in this part of the world. That's right, because the media portrayals of life as the country cop, it's always so relaxed and he knows everyone and the occasional crisis comes up and he sorts it out and has a beer with the locals afterwards. But the reality of regional Australia is much different and the reality of your job is very different. For instance, that area there is on a very significant drug route going east-west. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you say about the um, TV connotations of country policing. I watched Blue Heelers when I was at the police academy and thought, gee, working in the country would be all right because everything wraps up in a day. So I'm now living that life and that's not the case. Yeah, look, it is a major drug route and um, South Australia have some really strong legislation around drug routes and drug careers. So it was something as well to get my head around when I came here is just that sheer volume that can use the roads. Look, we all know drugs are in the community, but we do have an annual operation which brings the three states together, South Australia, Victoria and ourselves, to try and target that. And look, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be involved in these sort of operations that bring together hundreds of police from three different jurisdictions with three different pieces of legislation, all with the same target. It's pretty cool to be part of and pretty cool when some arrests happen. Um, But yeah, it brings its complexities, that's for sure. Because... There you are at the pointy end of organised crime investigations and law enforcement. Absolutely. And it is organised crime. We're very fortunate where we are, that our relationships with Victoria and South Australia are incredibly strong. But we're also very fortunate that Sydney hasn't forgotten about us. So the drug squad in Sydney get heavily involved in advice and guidance for these operations. And our local detectives tap into that as well. And we've got some really strong team members in this part of the world And our detectives work hand in hand, particularly with Victoria, on a daily basis for this and a a range of other serious 
and uh, protracted investigations. Do you feel like you're winning? Are you creating a deterrence effect there in that strategic region? I think so, because I think part of what we do with this operation is high visibility. And I like to call it behaviour modification. So whilst someone might be determined to transport drugs from Adelaide to Sydney, if they know that police are out and about and they can visibly see you out and about, it might change their mind to do it in a different way on a different day or perhaps not at all. And that's what we want. You know, I've seen too many drug deaths when I worked in Sydney. If we can stop these drugs from moving around the country, we might just save a life. Because the person in the blue uniform in the city is different to one in the country. In the city, you're almost anonymous. You do your shift on the van or wherever it is and you go home, hang your uniform up. Some people don't even like wearing their uniforms on public transport and so forth because they want to be anonymous. But in the country, no matter what you're wearing, they know who you are. You've got one officer stations in the area. It's very much upfront policing and requires a certain kind of personality. Have you got it? I think you do. I'd like to think I do, Adam, but I guess you'd have to ask my community and my staff that. When I was in the city, I did 20 years in Sydney. I never once hung my uniform outside. I didn't want anyone to know what I did for work. Uh, Here, when I first moved here, we lived in the police house. Every single person knew our home, our movements, our shopping. As 20 years in the city was very confronting, to be honest with you, but it does mean that you're not just a uniform. They will listen to you more because they know you as a person as opposed to just being you know, the local cop or there to, you know, go crook on them or whatever. Particularly for me, I want my staff to get into the schools to build those relationships early so that sometimes the first time they'll see police is when they enter their home uh, to arrest mum, dad, brother, sister, auntie, uncle, whoever. I don't want that to be the case with my community. I want them to know their local cops by first name. We don't care. The kids call me Prue and that's totally fine. It's that relationship building that changes everything and is just so different from the city. But it's the most rewarding thing you get because you just know that you're making a difference. It might not be that day, that week, that year. And I say a year, one of our local schools here, Denton um, Public School, for a year I went to the awards ceremony almost every week and the kids didn't acknowledge me, wouldn't look me in the eye. And after a year, the first morning I walked in, morning crew, and that's when I knew we'd made a difference. And those kids still, years later, talk to me about that. So it, sometimes it's, it's so hard because it takes so long, but it's worth it. Road safety is one of Prue's highest priorities in this huge far-flung command. Collisions in the country tend to be at higher speed, greater forces, greater damage, more fatalities and horrific scenes. And it's your job, your GD's staff have to get there, triage the, the scene pick up all the evidence here, get a narrative, because if one person's caused the death of another, this will be a job for the major collision unit out of Sydney. So as you say, that job is critical for the health of the community. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the city at at a major collision, you might have five, six, ten cars show up. Out here and in other parts of New South Wales, it's a crew and maybe a single officer trying to manage that initial scene of devastation and trauma and traffic issues and we often have single vehicle accidents as well because of all the wildlife that we've got. Speed limits at 110 kilometres an hour, if you hit a roo, depending on the size of that roo, that can be fatal. So it's about community education as well, often around school holidays and other major events, and particularly Monday Monday that's in August in Broken Hill. There's people travelling on our parts of the road who would never have come out here before who think they can travel the same way that they can, you know, around Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong. It's really important that people, when they travel in the country, to know 
There's kangaroos. They'll jump out in front of you. Emus could turn on a dime, uh, cheeky little things that they are. So the livestock as well, there's goats on the road, there's sheep, cattle, you name it. So it's very different when you come to a traffic collision out here because you could have a mob of wild goats that you're trying to manage as well as the fatal accident. It's really challenging. As I sit here listening to you talking about this, I can see you're referencing a job or two. Yeah, so, I mean, unfortunately, we have had a lot of fatalities out here and most of them are those single vehicle accidents, either because of wildlife or, or stops or fatigue. So fatigue is probably just as much of a factor and it builds into those collisions with livestock because you're not paying attention to the side of the road. You're not looking at your peripheral vision because if you drive in the city, you'll feel like you can see a car coming from the other direction but you won't see a root jumping out. So, yeah, I mean, there's no one specific one. There has just been so many and so many families who've lost loved ones because of not paying attention and just not appreciating that country driving is so different to city driving and overtaking, there's no overtaking lanes. You have to just make your judgment call and make sure you've got a clear line of vision. So, you know, for anyone listening to this podcast, driving in the country is so different. Please just be careful. Absolutely. I think passing another car on a single carriageway, bumpy road, bends, roos, trees, fences, is the most dangerous thing people will ever do in their lives. Absolutely. And, you know, there's evidence to say that um, fatigued driving is the same as impaired driving. So, you know, people think having a cup of coffee is going to help, getting out and having a walk around, slapping themselves in the face, whatever old wives' tale they've heard of. It's not the case. Pay for the night's accommodation. It's worth it. Yeah, because you came from Goulburn originally, correct? But, but really, Goulburn's civilised country. Where you're there, it's very different. I wonder how long did it take for all the blue healers' delusions to fall away, Prue Bergen? One shift, Adam, one shift. And to be honest, and I've told everyone who's come to work here, I came out quite cocky, thinking, you know, I had 20 years in the city, I'd been a sergeant for nine years, this was going to be easy, I was going to be able to do everything, not a problem. I know the resourcing is not the same, but I know my skills and I can do this. And within a shift I worked out, but um, I needed to be a bit humble and eat that humble pie because it's just so different. You know, we have the same badge on our sleeve, but so many of the things are just so different. So, yes, Blue Healers, one shift, that concept annihilated. But to be honest with you, I didn't expect Blue Healers, but I knew, you know, being a country kid and, and knowing our local sergeant, I knew that it was far more about community and building relationships and building trust than it ever would be about wrapping up a job in a shift and going to the pub. Now, you're a victim of your own success, I suggest. They're going to eventually want to drag you back into the city for some other administrative managerial role. Ready for that? Absolutely not. I hope the commissioner is listening to this. No, ma'am. I love the country. And to be honest with you, it does take a certain either person or personality or change, like I had to when I came out, um, to tap back into my country roots. You've almost got to be the sheriff of the town. You're not just dealing with policing. You're dealing with community issues. You're dealing with other agencies. For me, I'm dealing with Victoria Police on a daily basis. You know, that interaction with every single cross-section and every single small town is 
100% what country policing is like. So, yes, I'm not going back to Sydney, Adam. It's not for me because it's a unique part of the world to work and I've still got work to do here. You've got one member stations there as well. You've got to manage those guys. They're actually in a very unique position. Yeah, the classic one is Tipperborough. Tipperborough is literally in the middle of nowhere. There is one officer up there by himself. They have had a few separate jobs where, um, I mean, one was the pub caught on fire and local residents helped the officer up there with that fire. It is community because that is so critical to be able to police that town but keep the town safe. And the message that we always give in country towns is our job is to keep you safe and whether that is something that you find challenging at times because we have to do things you're not going to like, the other times conversely is they will jump in and help you. And I have had community members jump in and help me and my staff when a job has gone south and they have been extra hands for us. So it is hard for us, though, police to know. And, and the worst thing you can ever hear is a job on the radio. You know the officers there by themselves and people start rolling out and trying to support them. But it could be hours away, in all honesty. So it's tough um, when you hear those jobs happening on the radio. And, you know, the radio channel that we cover is the whole Murray River, basically. So you'll hear single unit stations and your heart just breaks for them because you just want to get in the car and start going and save them. But you know the community will do that for you until we can get there. One thing we don't hear enough about in the bush, and it's probably because country people are so stoic and they get on with things, is domestic and family violence. It's really been a big topic in the city. We know it happens in the country, but it tends to be a bit behind closed doors. A lot of pressures on farmers, a lot of pressures on communities, flood, fire, famine. How do you deal with that question in your community? Yeah, it's true. Family members of regional and rural and remote, it's hard to leave a home if you're 400 k's from someone else. It's hard to leave your home if everything you have is tied up in your family business. One of our key things is working with our other agencies to make sure that we can best support family. And it may be that you're going to stay in your home and there's orders that we can put in place but our job as police is to continually reinforce with community that when you come forward, we will look after you. We will refer you to agencies. And there's a lot of funding, um, everyone knows that, around domestic violence um, and making sure that we make people aware of that funding. One of the key things for us here is we've just got a program called Staying Home, Leaving Violence. And it means that someone doesn't have to leave their home if they report domestic violence. It could be that the offender is moved and the victim remains at home you know, changing the mindset around the state of how we approach our most critical, in all honesty, our most critical crime is pivotal because as well out here you see generational violence. Um, children do what they've seen mum and dad do. Mum and dad do what they saw grandma and grandpa do. So changing that cycle of violence and going through the PCYC Rise Up program as well for us is just so critical. And I guess if there's one message as well that I'd like to put out to anyone listening to this, if you don't donate to the PCYC, please do. It means that we can build new centres for new communities that need this because that we can get in and change these kids. Yes, it's going to be a generation, but if we can do that and stop kids from repeating the violent behaviour that they see, I mean, this goes into the schools, Adam. You know, so they see it at home and then you have peer violence happen and, you know, we call that lateral violence. But it's just so important to get in early. But reinforce with victims, we're here, we'll support you no matter where you live or what it takes. And all of the agencies, not just us, all of the agencies that we work with will keep you safe. Yeah, I think I'm getting to know you a bit here. 
and to understand why you spent all that time at those prize givings being ignored and so forth. Because really what I'm getting from you is that you'll judge yourself on the health of the community with your tenure in the, in the role. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a strong community is a good community. In a perfect world, and I always call it utopia, is we have no jobs to go to because we've done such a good job in making our community and our staff resilient that no crime's happening. Now, that's never going to happen, but I am touching wood when I speak to you. But it's important. We should leave places better than we got them. And what about those recruits at the police academy who are hoping, oh, I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get Rose Bay or I'll get Bondi and they get Broken Hill, you know? Well, what's your message to them? So if you're at the police academy, and, and everyone in my class did as well, everyone put in for the city, know that there is one critical difference of being posted to the country. The only thing that will save you from every single job is your ability to communicate. In the city, you don't have to as much because you've got more people, more crews, more resources. Whereas in the country, it's you and one other cop. And the words that come out of your mouth, your body language that you portray will save you from a job going south. So I had this conversation only the other night with a young officer in Broken Hill. They will return from their time in the country with superior communication skills that will forever and a day make them better cops. And the little sideline, if you're going to come to the bush, you'll learn over time. You won't get it in the city. Come out, earn some money, have some fun and go back to the city. A much better cop. Thank you so much for your time. I'm impressed. I want to come move out there. Really? No, thank you, Adam. Everyone, come move. It's a wonderful part of the world. <laughs> that was Inspector Prue Bergen on working the country beat in the Barrier Police District. This segment was sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Next week on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, a million dollar reward for a cold case from 1993. Some I have found and they haven't been willing to speak. Others I've found, people I didn't think I would ever find and they've been more than willing to talk and have provided uh, an incredible amount of background information about Bill and his life and certain scenarios that, that may have occurred. And the students of Class 357 bid farewell to the New South Wales Police Academy. Even though you're on probation for the first 12 months and you're still doing your studies during that first year, you are a qualified police officer from the minute you start which is generally the Monday after the parade on Friday. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, speak to us on 131 728 or visit policebank.com.au because banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Mensel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. 